Welcome to Documentary Storytellers. My name's Chris King, a documentary photographer and filmmaker, and with this podcast, I'm exploring the ideas, experiences, and practices of fellow photographers and filmmakers driven by a desire to have a positive impact on the issues they document. This week, I'm speaking with Mike Snyder, a documentary photographer and filmmaker based in Charlottesville in the US. And in his work, Mike explores the dynamic relationship between environmental and cultural change. An environmental and climate scientist by training, Mike uses his combined knowledge of visual storytelling and conservation to create narratives that drive social impact. Mike and I discuss topics such as how best to approach human stories in a way that maximizes the positive impact through having a considered, rigorous and impact-first approach to planning, implementation and the outputs. We also chat about how Mike goes about getting funding and his approach to pitching his stories, as well as his thoughts on how we can become better storytellers and how to best prepare for shoots. There's so much to take away from our chat, both practical, actionable advice and ideas to reflect on in relation to impact-driven visual storytelling. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So first of all, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and the work that you do, that'd be great. My name is Mike Snyder. I'm a documentary photographer and filmmaker. Uh, I, I principally work on climate related issues, but also environmental and social justice related issues. I'm based in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is on the east coast of the States, um, but I work worldwide. I've got projects that I that I run all over. Um, yeah, and I I love my work. I love what I do. I'm a, I'm a climate scientist and environmental scientist by training, um, but I made the transition to this field because I just think visual storytelling, not only is it rewarding work to do, um, but it's potentially a very powerful way to get after the issues that I care about. Um, so I love what I do. I'm very lucky to, to be doing what I what, what I do. And and I've got I've got two little kids um, who I who I enjoy and uh, and part of what I do is to help build a better world for for them as well. And that's not an inconsequential part of my why for being here. So you mentioned that you're an environmental scientist by training. So what exactly inspired you, other than obviously um, a desire to create positive change, generally speaking, I'm sure. What inspired you to pick up the camera and start telling visual stories? Yeah, no, that's right. So my, my background is in environmental science. I, um, I grew up in a small town in Appalachia, the sort of uh, wild mountainous region on, that kind of runs the length of the east coast of the States. And it was a place that was incredibly beautiful. So I was certainly inspired by, by nature as a, as, as a kid, but it was also a place that had been disfigured by 150 years of industrial extraction, um, particularly coal and, and also timber. Um, and so for, from, from a young age, I think I was very aware of the scars that that had on the ecosystems that I, that I grew up in, um, but also in the community that I grew up in too. I mean, those, um, those impacts are, are bore out to this day. Uh, both economically and in health-related issues. So, so I, I became very passionate about environmental issues, and that's what I studied again as an as an undergrad um, and as a as a graduate student. And it was during the graduate program that I really came to two conclusions that led me to the work that I do today, and and really got me holding the camera as a as a full-time gig. The first is that I think for anyone that spends the time with the data, like if, if you if you bother to dig in on climate science and do your due diligence and read up on it and see what's out there, I think you come to the conclusion that that that, that this is very real, um, that it's human caused, and that it has the potential to be the biggest issue that we face not only now but well into the future. It's kind of the mother of all issues, um, because it stands to impact everything else that we care about. Um, and if we don't get it right now on climate change, um, we get it wrong on everything else. So I, f I fundamentally feel like it's the call of our times to work on this issue in, in one way or another. 
so that was a conclusion. And, and the second was, and this, this is the thing that I think really blew my mind, is despite what we know about this issue, and it's an awful lot, and despite 30, 50 years of good science, just how precious little we've moved the needle on this, um, both in terms of public attitude and opinion, although that's changing, certainly, but I think also more importantly in terms of um, behavior change and, and action. Um, and that's a, why we haven't done that is a, is a big question. It's something that I spent my graduate work looking at. But to come to the punchline here, one of the most powerful tools we have to affect change is visual storytelling. For a variety of reasons, I'll give a few quick ones. One is it has an ability to take these incredibly abstract, oftentimes global issues and Climate change is one of these at large, right? We're talking about truly a global issue. It's incredibly abstract. It happens over a long period of time. Things that we're just not hardwired to see and understand very well. I mean, we we evolved to deal with um, you know uh, issues like a, like a fire or a tiger in the camp, right? And this is, doesn't operate like that, even though it's a threat. And so our visual storytelling tools have a way to make that personal and for us to connect to that and to make that and to make that real. They also can show us solutions where it, be, it can become so disempowering to look at these issues and think, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do at all. Well, if we can see that there's people all around the world that are caring about these issues, that are hopeful about this issue, that are doing something about it, that have a vision for the future, we know that's powerful and that inspires us to change as well. So for, for all, all of these reasons, yeah, I, I am about 15 years ago and now I made a career transition to, to me, they're all part of the exact same thing, whether I'm working as a scientist or whether I, uh, I'm working as, as a visual storyteller. They're just ways, different tools to affect change on what I care about. But I shifted to uh, now principally I run a production company uh, that makes documentary films. Um, and I also am a photojournalist, I suppose we'll say. Um, and I, I print a lot of my work in, in magazines and I work closely with nonprofit organizations, um, academic organizations to help drive impact around these issues. There's a lot to unpack there. If we start with uh, why you think we haven't managed to move the needle in terms of engagement, um, behavior change, and things like that, what's, what has been fundamentally wrong with climate change communication thus far? that hasn't inspired people to take action and change their behaviors for the better? Well, I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. The first one, the bigger picture, is that individual actions are not what's going to get us there, ultimately. We have to change social structures, right? So we've got to get, essentially, the game is rigged towards climate pollution, right? The economic system we currently have set up, the way in which the, the world engages is preferential towards, you know, creating climate change, essentially, right? And that's not on an individual level to be able to resolve. That's on an international policy level. Um, it's on a, it's on a uh, local and uh, national level. And so we've got to shake down the halls of power if you want to make a difference here. We've got to change the rules of the, of the game. So that's the big picture. Now, of course, to be able to get to that place, you've got to motivate individuals. So I don't mean to say the individual component isn't an important part of it. It's just not where the end game is. Um, when it, when it comes to this. In, in terms of more specifically what climate communication has got wrong, I think in a nutshell it's this, is we would love to believe that we're the sort of animals where we simply present the data to them, you know, as they say, and we lay out what the problem is, we describe the problem to them. Well, we're just gonna naturally, you know, say, okay, that's a big deal, we'll deal with that and we'll, um, you know, we'll resolve this and, and, and we'll move on our way, right? That We would like to think we're that sort of rational animal. And the truth is we're a much, much more complicated animal than that, right? We're very normative. We look around us and see what other people are doing. We're extremely emotionally driven. We're very connected to the things we immediately care about. We have a strong emotional response to. 
um, and so on. There's all different things that, that, that sort of make up who we are that we make decisions about that don't necessarily um, uh, move us to move rationally. So a lot of the climate communication have focus, focused around the science. You know, it's sort of as say, here's the bad news and we're going to scare you out of this and we're going to paint this picture of how horrible it's going to be. And then we expect that people are going to move forward and they don't. Right. And in fact, what we've learned is when we just present people with the bad news, not only is it not doing good, we actually run the risk of people moving in the other direction because it just feels too frightening and too big to deal with. And people would rather go back and watch football or whatever. Right. Because well, if you can't do anything about it, why do you want to you know, deal with that much suffering? Um, so there, there are other things that, that we know we can do. And I'll give you kind of a kind of a quick summary if I had to advise on visual storytellers of how you tell stories that reach audiences. One is certainly you want to describe the issue. We want to raise the level of scientific literacy around this issue. But two, we want to go on that and get critical, socially critical about what are the underlying systems and structures that cause this issue in the first place, right? It's not just the the, the you know um, chemical mechanics in the atmosphere that does this. It's It's social and economic systems that do this. And we understand what the blocks are. So you need to go deeper. You need to get kind of a collegiate level of understanding. And usually good climate reporting, good climate storytelling does this. But those are the first two components. The, the, the other two components, and these are really the critical ones if you want to motivate people, if you want to drive change. One, you've got to search solutions, right? If you just tell people how terrible this is, how awful this is, and you leave them there, um, and you don't show them solutions again, they, they run a risk of backing up. So show solutions to climate change. And the, the truth is, we have the policy and the technology to be able to resolve this issue at large. Not in every way. These things are evolving. These things are changing. But if we deployed what we have now, right, we'd be in much better position. So showing that, normalizing that, getting people excited about that is really, really important. And second, right, is it's not just about, you know, saying here's a problem and here's some solutions. And, you know, then hopefully we'll move over here and we'll get out of the kettle, right? That might be enough to motivate people, but if you really want to get people to move, if you really want to inspire them, you have to present a vision for a better future, right? We're not just escaping from a carbon-intensive past. Hopefully, we're moving towards a, car a, a post-carbon future that's a bright future. Now, I don't want to say not a, not a challenging one. It'll be challenging to make that transition, but there are some really amazing opportunities ahead of us. And we know that people are motivated even more by that, by the carrot, Right, than they are by the stick, right? So we've got to get better at sharing visions for the future that are bright visions for the future that also have the benefit of resolving climate change as we go. I assume your suggestion that we, we start introducing more stories around solutions is in parallel with continuing to visually represent and document the other stories, the impacts, the, the what's actually unfolding. And so it's just redressing that balance so people understand that Things are a mess. People are suffering and have been for decades. Um, but there's also an alternative and that we need to start exploring that. That's exactly right. It's a it's a multidimensional approach and you want to do all of those things. If you also just present stories that's all kind of rose tinted glass, you know, <laughs> we're going to solve this problem and things are going to be fine and things are going to be wonderful. Not only do you not do you deny the lived experience of people right now who are dealing with this issue and there are, you know, thousands, if not millions of people around the planet that are already dealing with this and that number will soon rise into the billions not only do you do you deny them that right but you really don't you're really not um upholding sort of the token of journalistic excellence here because a big part of the problem is is the reality of it right is is the impacts that are going on right now so it's essential that 
that we do both. But to answer your question, what we've gotten wrong is we, we preferentially talk about the doom and the gloom and we skip out on talking about the solutions and the hope that we can have for the future. So it's about regaining that balance. But then there's also a challenge in the sense that you've pointed out that for a systemic change to occur, it's uh, the power brokers, it's the people in part in government who ultimately need to engage with the issue in in a different way in a more constructive meaningful way um, and that the bottom-up approach is obviously vital necessary but still that probably take too long in, in terms of um, the speed the rapidity at which we need to actually start taking action so it, it requires that uh, top-down approach and, and so how do we get the stories that we're exploring in front of those policymakers and in front of the people who can just change things overnight if they wanted to, if they were motivated to. How do we get the stories in front of them and how do we inspire them to actually take action and not just speaking to the choir or speaking to our immediate audience who, even even with presenting solutions, feel overwhelmed and, and maybe disempowered and, and don't know how they can actually affect change because ultimately it is the people in government who have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Well, I'll say first, you know, everyday citizens, the consumers of these stories do have power, right? You've got the power of your vote. You've got the power to be able to go and talk to your representatives. Like that's not an inconsequential amount of power for, for most of us. Right. And so I do certainly encourage people to exercise that power. And if we exercise that power effectively, that can make an enormous amount of difference. You've also got the power to make noise. I mean, people can go and they can join protests, they can rally, they can organize. So there's a lot There's a lot that can be done, even on the individual level. To speak to what storytellers can do, and this is oftentimes what, what I'm invited to speak about when I'm invited to run trainings about, and it's a field that is often called impact production, right? So you make, you make your projects, you, you learn how to use a camera and take great images or make great films, right? And then you learn about, okay, how do I take that technical tool and turn it into a story? So you've made a great story. And then you learn how to publish your story. And a lot of times in our world, that's where the thinking ends. And what I try to challenge photographers and filmmakers to do is like, oh, okay, that's awesome. You've achieved a high level of success, but you hold an enormous amount of power in your hands to be able to drive change in society. What if we took that one step further, right? What if we were able to take this content that we've created and get it in front, as you said, of the folks that make decisions? How do we do that? And one of the most important things to note in when you move into that space is you just can't do it on your own, right? Like as a, as a visual storyteller, as a journalist, not only are there some reasonable barriers about what the work of a journalist is, and it's not exactly being an, an activist, but those halls are oftentimes closed to us. So what I do and what I encourage people to do is to really get savvy about networking with organizations, with policymakers, with lawyers, with academics. And there are thousands of organizations out there that, that do do this work and are really eager for the content that we create, that they can use. And we can work with them to help design strategies, whether that's public engagement strategies, again, to reach the public, or whether it's more specific and targeted, like we're gonna get it at this conference, or we're gonna get it in front of this policymaker, or we're gonna tie it to this specific action. And so uh, I would say a full third of the work I do in, 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 over any given time period is focusing on driving impact around, around the work that I make. I, I think it's a, a very important part of what we do. Um, and again, if we say what we really care about, and a lot of us do, a, a, a lot of us working in the field of visual storytelling do care about the issues that we work on, 
if we want to be more than just entertainers, we've got to learn to be able to do this part of the job as well. In terms of the impact, because obviously we can go into a situation with good intentions and the desire to have positive impact, but potentially the way that we document a story, especially if it involves people and representation of those people, we can actually be doing greater harm than good. And especially if we're perpetuating some sort of prevailing narrative that's based on colonialist mindsets, how do we ensure that we're not just going in with good intentions, but also an awareness of the potential impact that we're going to have and ensuring that that impact that, we, that we're striving to have is positive and meaningful? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, what you're, what you're pointing out there and rightly pointing out is that the history of journalism is one that has often been a very extractive history, right? And what I mean by that is the visual storytelling world, the, the, the journalism world has gone into communities that are impacted by environmental issues or social issues or, 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 or war conflict related issues, got the stories that we need, went home and sold them, and very little ever came back to those communities at all, right? And so sort of it's, it's eerily parallel to the way the extractive industry works when it comes to mining resources, right? You drop into a community, take what you need, and, and nothing comes back. And so if we wanna really be a part of changing that dynamic, changing that worldview, changing that culture, we've gotta realize that the way in which we do work, right? Not just the work that we create, but the way in which we do the work is the, what we're producing itself, right? The actual medium, you know, the the process is also the the message. So what, what I oftentimes want to get people to think about is moving from an extraction-based model of journalism to an empowerment-based model of journalism. And I'll just highlight a, a few kind of elements of what that looks like. Part of it is whenever you do like in a an extraction-based model, right? The, your, your reason for having the relationships is to be able to get what you need to get out, right? You build access to get your story to get out. And what I always encourage people to do is to think about those relationships as the actual outcome itself, to invest in the relationships because you because you care. So think more longitudinally. Spend a lot of time in advance investing in those relationships. And once your project is over, maintain those, right? Be genuinely interested in the communities that you work in. Second, whenever you present the voice, when you have the voice in your work, it's certainly okay for you to have your own voice as a journalist. I don't want to say that you shouldn't be able to tell a story or an outside expert can't have a story, but make sure that you're really listening and you're hearing the voices of the people on the ground that are impacted by these issues and that you're elevating those as well, right? You're being true to their own experience rather than being colonialist in, in, in the sense that you're just taking your voice on high and your understanding on high and you're injecting it into the story, right? So you got to have a careful balance there. I oftentimes uh, challenge people to really think about the benefits that they bring back to the communities that they work in. Again, like I said, there's oftentimes very few benefits, but there's a lot, there's lots of ways that you can benefit communities that you work in. Um, a few that I do is one, pretty much uh, on every project that I work with, what I say up front to the communities and also the organizations that work in the communities that I work in is I will hap happily license images back to you to use for advocacy work. You know, and if you want to use these, you can be able to use them. Usually there's there's some sort of timeline that they can use them or we have to limit that license in a way so it doesn't conflict with, you know, the publication that you work with. But there's oftentimes a way to give the work back to them. Another uh, thing you can do is you can bring the work back to them. So I might try to publish in an international uh, publication, but I'll also, time, I'll also oftentimes try to publish in a regional and even a local publication. Right? So if I do a story about sea level rise, I want to publish some of that work in the community that the work was made about. Right, So they get to access that immediately. It's not just for a global audience. The story is also for them. And I'll often say that if I'm going to do a, a printed show of this work, I want to do that show in the community that was made about first. 
That doesn't mean I won't go show it in New York or Paris or wherever, but I want to make sure that community experiences it as well. And 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 finally, um, you know, uh, we can advocate to help bring back grants or bring back money to be able to support that community. Or if we have community members that want to come and speak about these issues, right? And a lot of times as photographers or filmmakers, we're invited to speak. I oftentimes say, that's awesome. I'd love to come speak about this issue and speak about these stories. But the real experts here are the ones that are working on this issue, that are experiencing this issue. And a lot of times the real experts are the ones that are directly on the front lines. Let's get some community leaders involved. And so we can leverage our contacts to be able to bring them into the decision-making space uh, and, and that goes a long way as well. So a few things there, but the idea is at the end of the day, right, you're a, you're a value add for the communities that you work in. You're bringing something to them that is useful for them and you invest in the relationship over a long period of time and you ask them what would be useful to you. <laughs> so it helps to guide that conversation. So have you got any examples of you applying this with your own projects um, and and the impact and that has had on a, on a local level or at all levels. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I will say that the, this way of work is the norm for all projects that I work across. But I'll give, give one example because it's a project that's currently in sort of the post-production, impact production side of things. I'll, and I'll very quickly explain the project. In 2021, I got a fellowship through the Bertha Climate Challenge. Well, it's called the Bertha Climate Challenge Fellowship. It's through the Bertha Foundation. And this was to produce a body of work over, over a course of a year. And so I did a project about sea level rise in the Chesapeake Bay, which for those that don't know, this is a, a large estuary on the east coast of the United States um, where Baltimore and Washington, D.C. are. And without diving in too deep, a, a lot of the work was focused around identifying community leaders and, he, and doing oral histories, hearing their perspectives about, even if they're very diverse in sort of their, their backgrounds and their outlooks, their political philosophy, their religious philosophy, how do their values overlap such that we can find a common ground around this issue to be able to build a bigger tent and really um, you know, work together to find community-based solutions to this issue. So that, that was what the project was documenting, right? But once the work was done, again, much as I said, the goal then was to bring it back to the community and to share it back with the community. So um, we've recently done uh, several gallery installations of the work in gallery spaces. But knowing that, you know, there's only a certain subset of the population that goes into galleries, we also wanted to make sure that we installed the work outdoors. So we've taken these large oral histories that we made, these, these photographs, and we've installed them on these fences outdoors so people in the community can be able to see them. Another core part of this project was to make a storytelling model that is easy to replicate. Like it, it, you might not be able to replicate it at the level that it was done, but it, in, in general, you could take this, this mode of storytelling, which I can unpack more if you want to know more about it, but you can take this mode of storytelling that I did for this project. You could hand that over to a kid in a high school and with a little bit of training, they could go out and tell their own stories that are in, in parallel to what this project was doing. And so we've been doing that. I think maybe six or seven high schools throughout the region are now doing similar work. Um, I've been working with some national organizations to help community organizers be able to learn the model to share it, um, both in the Chesapeake Bay, but also elsewhere. So it's a way to kind of roll this out and drive more impact. And then finally, I've been working with local policymakers um, to be able to have conversations around this work, um, both regionally in the Chesapeake Bay, but also I brought some of this work to the um, UN Climate Conference uh, where I spoke at in November of 2021 in, in Glasgow. And that's sort of a way to take it 
to the national stage. So just a few little kind of hits there um, for that project. But again, this is something that I try to do to lesser or greater extents for all the work that I do. Sounds amazing, but I, I assume you, in, in certain situations, especially if, if you've been commissioned by a publication, then you would have to negotiate certain elements, whatever you can, to add these different layers of potential impact. Um, are, are all publications receptive to you taking this approach and, and going above and beyond just kind of handing over the... Um, some lice, um, some images that they can use that they're they're willing for you to to make it accessible and available to the local community and to have all these bolt-ons. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, the journalism industry is not well built for reasons that I think are understandable and maybe some that that are maybe more questionable, but is not well built to support this kind of work. Right, this kind of work is longitudinal. It's resource intensive. Um, it wades into spaces that are maybe not pure journalism. Again, you're kind of at the fringes of, of activism and community organizing as well. And so it's, it's difficult to do this, the kind of work that I'm doing, certainly at a desk job, at a, uh, at a, at a journalism outlet, but, but even in underneath direct commission. So to be able to do this work, what I often do is I source funding outside of a publication outlet to be able to be, be the core source of funding. A lot of that comes from grant-based funding. Most of it does. I also have some projects that have fiscal sponsorship that can take public donations. And and then I'll, once that kind of core need for funding is met, I'll usually bring in a publication that, that provides a s- small amount of funding, but they're not the core funder to it, so they don't have direct access over it. That you know that 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 said, you know I've I've had plenty of um, publication outlets that have been very happy to carve off sort of in this ecosystem of media and impact that I'm creating. They're, they're, they know it exists. They're very happy about it, and they're happy to license off some of the images that they can use in the area that that they are holding this conversation, and they're happy to be part of that bigger picture. So I I don't feel that I have ever had an antagonistic. Um, relationship actually at all with publication outlets that have been working this way. It's just very difficult for them to be in the driver's seat behind it and probably not the best fit for the way to do work. The impact. So obviously, you know, it's very comprehensive, your approach and and very considered um, clearly. How did you reach this point? How did you get to, what is the driving force behind this desire to have impact? But in this particular way, in terms of like the practical uh, elements to your practice, in terms of understanding that this is the way that you need to function, this is how you need to approach things, that you need to be inclusive and and, um, participatory where possible, um, but also, yeah, consider representation, have all these different ethics and that, that form inform your your interaction with the people that you're documenting and and the issue itself so where did all that come from yeah one of the things that i so i speak to students quite a bit um and i teach quite a bit and one of the things i'm often asked to to talk about particularly to folks that are starting out in this career is how do you build a career that's sustainable and is rewarding and is and is going to be functional over the long term and one of the things that i often say to students is the place to start in that conversation is to understand your core why. Why why are you here? Not what do you do, not how do you do it, but why. If you know what it is that you care about, why you came into the, this room in the morning, what got you up in the first place, that's going to help drive your career, make it meaningful. And it's always going to guide you, even if the what or the how changes, right? Knowing your why is going to make a difference. Relevant to what you're asking here, for, for me, 
my why is to contribute in some small way to us making a transition towards a more just, more sustainable future. Um, and so how I deliver on that is somewhat immaterial to me. It, it turns out I do love working with cameras. I mean, it's, it, isn't, it isn't inconsequential that, um, that I absolutely get a huge kick out of doing this work. Um, my dad was a photographer. Um, that's who I learned from. Um, I, I love the fact I get to live in other people's shoes and understand the way that they perceive the world. It's an enormous gift to be able to do this work. But because my why connects to driving impact, connects to being part of that conversation, hopefully connects to easing the suffering of, you know, people that are experiencing this now, but also future generations. Me constantly returning to this question of making sure that what I'm doing isn't just changing the color of dots on a screen. That's something I think about daily. And it's an exciting time to be asking these questions because a lot of other people are asking these questions. Uh, I think both in journalism, but also in policy, also in science, there's parallel conversations that are currently ongoing about why we are struggling to make a change on this issue when, when we need to. And so people all over the world are asking themselves these questions. And I'm, I'm excited that I'm a part of a number of organizations um, that are really focusing down and are really trying to drill down on best practice to figure out how to do this. So, so I will say, I, I, I don't think we know what that is yet. I think this is, a, this is an evolving space. Um, and I think it will continue to evolve as the technology evolves and as the situation evolves. Um, but it's something that, that certainly I'm exploring and, and that I'm constantly exploring. And what are the organizations that you have um, a particular relationship with who are receptive to this approach and who are supportive of it? So I'm, I'm working one with one at the Arts University of Bournemouth in, in, in the UK. I recently started an organization there um, called the Crux Photography Network. Um, that's that's asking themselves these questions. Uh, I work with uh, Columbia University uh, at their Earth Institute. They've got um, a, a meaningful migration. I'm getting the name of their conference wrong now, um, but it's a uh, it's a climate um, migration conference that I've spoken at, and I've done some training with faculty there. And then I'm advising for the um, uh, Southern New Mexico Environmental Media Center, which is another space that is being built right now um, to be able to, again, bring more people into the room to have this conversation. It can't just be visual storytellers in the room, right? Visual storytellers need access to good data that scientists are generating. We need access to stories that are found on the ground by social activist organizations and community organizers. We need to connect these stories to decent policy acts. So we need we need policy people in the room, right? And they need us. All of those organizations need us to be able to tell the stories that drive impact around the issues that they care about. So all of these organizations are trying to not only build high impact work, but to build the networks to make this work do work in society. And I think it's both those things in tandem that that's going to make a difference. So these are, these are the organizations that are having these conversations and that you're participating in. But in terms of your work and, and this approach that you're taking, uh, what organizations have been supportive for that? Like, how, how do you obtain the funding, the financial support to go out and do this comprehensive impact driven um, impact first kind of approach? Well, I have to say a lot of times it's cobbling it together from a lot of different sources. Um, so in a, in, in a given year, I have, in fact, I'm like looking at it, it's pinned to my board here. It's telling me that it's April and I haven't yet applied for the grants I'm due to apply in, in, in April. But I have, a, I have a list that is thousands of grants long. 
and I strategically uh, look at that list every year, think about projects that are a good match, and I try to apply to at least 10 grants in a month. I usually set aside one or two days a month, usually early in the month. Like I said, I'm a bit late. Um, but to, to, to be able to do that work, a, a lot of times it does mean cobbling it together, although there are some larger funding sources that are that are out there. I guess I'll highlight two things that have been useful for me. One, um, and this is a secret I don't think a lot of people know, but if you can achieve fiscal sponsorship for your project, and fiscal sponsorship means that your project is not just you, it's not just something that you make, it becomes an entity unto itself. And in, 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 in the speech of the United States, we would call it becomes a 501c3, which is a nonprofit organization here. Um, but there are other designations in, in any other country. And what that means is because you have that designation for your, for your particular project, you can then pull down much larger grants that are targeted towards nonprofit organizations that you as an individual cannot get, right? And so I've got a project about sea level rise I've been running for a number of years that's got fiscal sponsorship, and I've been able to pull down and access some substantially larger, more impact-driven grants than I could ever get as an individual. So it's a, sort of a little secret out there. There, there are a number of organizations. Uh, I'm currently sponsored for fiscal sponsorship with the Blue Earth Alliance, um, which does sponsor projects all around the world. But there are, there are numbers others. Uh, if, if folks are listening to this and they're interested in doing this, if you Google fiscal sponsorship for environmental photography or documentary filmmaking, you can find a number of organizations that are out there. So that's been great. It's not a source of funding, but it allows you to be able to get funding. Uh, and then I've been very lucky that National Geographic has sponsored two of my projects. Um, I'm currently working on a project with, with them um, and have been very generous uh, about providing support. And I will say they're another great organization that is very much at the center of this conversation and is very thoughtful about how we make work that makes a difference. You lead based on your project. So um, I, I'm making that assumption based on what you're saying is that you come up with an idea, you, you kind of break it down, you understand how you want to approach it, you go out and, and I assume create a body of work. And it's at that point that you would pitch, you know, when, when you've actually got a body of work, when you've built up those relationships and things, would that be correct? How do you approach initiating a new project? As it pertains to pitching and publication, let, let, let me approach it from, from that perspective. The, what you describe there is probably the most common way that I work, right? I, I start with the story. I start with access to that story. You know, I've got a topic. I move it to a story. I build access. I design impact, all that sort of stuff. I spend all that time in pre-production. Eventually, I make it, and then I sell it on the back end. Or a lot of times, they sometimes they sell. Sometimes you're really just publishing them, and there's not much sales involved. That's probably the most common way that I work. That said, there are plenty of projects that I've worked on that have had... Um, distribution and publication bodies that are involved up front. Um, sometimes they're involved in direct financial contribution. Other times they're just made aware of it and they sort of um, provide in-kind resources um, or they might just give it sort of a tacit thumbs up in the sense that, hey, we're really interested in this. We'd love to advise on this, come back and, and, and do it. Other times I've worked, you know, directly on spec, you know, on 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 hire um, for an outlet. They, we, I, from inception, I talk to them about the project and they pay for it, you know, um, and, I, and, I, and I make it that way with them, too. So th there's a lot of different ways to to that on, on that path to be able to get your work out there and get it seen. Different folks have different strategies. For, for me, again, I employ, employ a number of different strategies. It sort of just depends on the on the, on how the project goes. I don't exactly work work one way or another. Um, and so I would just encourage people to think open-mindedly about that, about how they can get their work out there and, and, and get it seen because there's no one way. Maybe if we can go back to 
you know your your approach and and how you think that we can become better storytellers because you say in your bio that reason alone does not a revolution make uh, we have to learn to tell a better story so what do you think we can do uh, to become better storytellers obviously it's beyond beyond the impact because we've explored that um, but just generally speaking in terms of creating engaging impactful stories yeah so i, I- I already highlighted, you know, this uh, these sort of four dimensions of knowledge that I would encourage um, folks to uh, put into their project. So again, I'll just I'll cover those really quickly, then I'll move on to some other uh, other elements um, that I think help us become good storytellers. But again, you want to explain what the problem is, why it exists, how we might solve this, and number four, where we might go. Right. So try to build those different dimensions of knowledge into the projects that you work on. Second, right, that's the left side of the brain, but you also want to connect to the other side of the brain, which is about emotional connection, right? And a lot of times, if you have an extremely data-driven project, it's hard to do that. So what I suggest people do is to look for characters. Look for, they could be non-human characters, but humans oftentimes connect to human characters. So look to folks that are living this data, Either they're scientists that are doing this work or you know, they could be folks that lead an organization that are doing this work or they could be people that are impacted by it, whatever it is. But try to hang the experience of whatever the stories you're telling on on the lived experiences of characters. And I, 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 I say we need to become better students of the structure of stories. Now, if you go to film school, you're going to get this right away. It's one of the first it's like you, you, you go in on day one and you get taught about the structures that stories take. And there's various structures that that stories can take. But a lot of us, even though we're, we're common consumers of media, and I think we know these things intuitively, we don't often take the time to sit back and think about, okay, how does a story actually work? What, work? Like, what, what makes an interesting story? And I think one of the best resources that I can point people towards is um, Pixar's Story Spine. It's awesome. It's a, it's a really simple structure for stories, but you can apply it to so many stories and it works well. I'll give it to you really quickly. This is it. Once upon a time, there was blank, Every day, blank. One day, blank. Because of that, blank. Because of that, blank. Until finally, blank. Okay? So that's just six different parts of the story there. Right? And if we go through and we look at those, we're setting up in the beginning there. Once upon a time there was, and every day they did. We're setting up the fundamental elements of a character. Right? Tell us about this character. What were they up to? Who are they? We want to give them opinions. We want to make them relatable. We want to make them complex. They're not all good. They're not bad. Paint in this character. Fill us, introduce us to a character in a world. And then one day, throw something at them. Right? All stories, what sparks motion in them is about conflict. So what's the conflict that your character is experiencing? Right? Conflict is what sets all stories in motion. So one day, what happened? And then stories are about action because of that conflict, right? Our characters have to have agency, right? If something's just happening to them and they're just a victim, it's not an interesting story. We want to know something happened to them. And because of that, they did something, right? So great stories are about action. They're about agency. They're about stakes. They have high stakes. What will happen if they do succeed? What will happen if they don't succeed? And to be able to succeed, they need to become vulnerable. They need to, they need to change in themselves to be able to change the world. So we want to show this inward change and this outward change right? Until finally, that's the last of the six elements, there's some sort of transformation, right? We want to see resolution to the story, even if they aren't able to solve the problem that they're up against, right? And a lot of times when it comes to environmental issues, you, you, you just can't. But maybe they transform internally. There's something different about the way that they understand the situation that they in. They understand themselves that's changed. And we can relate to that, right? When we, when we see somebody else going through these stories, right? We see ourselves in those stories, 
And because we can see ourselves, we can emotionally connect. And then of course we care about this issue. And then we might do something about this issue to back it up to the first part of our conversation. So knowing these structures of stories and knowing how to deploy them in the stories that we make is essential. So in your own practice then, how do you realize this? Do you have a particular method in terms of like pre-visualizing the story that you want to tell and then create some sort of shot list or at least, you know, visual understanding of the kind of things that you need to acquire visually to help represent these different elements of the story? Yeah. So for, for every project that I work on before jumping into production, right? I spend a lot of time in pre-production and these are filmmaking terms, but honestly, they can be used for any other kind of visual storytelling, whether you're a photographer or whether you're a writer or whatever it is. And pre-production means you spend as much time as you can in advance of actually creating, thinking through what it is that you're going to do, talking through what it is you're going to do, building up so that when you get on the ground, you're ready to go. Now, that doesn't mean that everything you've designed in pre-production is going to work out when you produce. This is particularly true in documentary work, right? The secret to the sauce is being able to let it go and let things happen, right? These stories are not yours to control. They're yours to document. That's what it means, right? But by having a sense of where it went, where you want to go, where you think it's going to go, you know where to turn the camera. You know what pieces you're looking for. Even if that piece changes, it becomes a slightly different form of that. You know the kind of piece that you're looking for. So I do a lot of advanced thinking. I sort of storyboard these things out a little bit. Um, I spend a lot of time relationship building before I ever get in the field to work with people as much as I can. I'm emailing, I'm calling, I'm getting to know people. Um, in, in one example, I'm working on a 10-year-long project just now about queer identities in Appalachia, about drag queens and a, and a broader community. But before I ever started shooting, I spent, I think it was nearly five years, just going to drag events, going to some of the spaces these folks were in, and just getting to know them. And when I did start shooting, I started shooting on a very surface level first. And it wasn't until I really felt that the relationship was in place Right, that I had a sense for what this was. Because it's, it's not my story. I mean, I, I'm, I'm from Appalachia. It's where I grew up. I know part of this, but I don't know what it means to be queer in Appalachia. Right? So before I could ever start shooting meaningfully about this, I had to have a good sense for, you know, for their why and for what they experience and what's going on for them. And then I could start to do the work. So a lot of focus on pre-production. And I will say also in pre-production, I think a lot about what kind of media I want to make. And I'll say a word on that here in a second because it's media plural. And I also do a lot of impact production work, meaning I think about, again, what work do I want this to do? And then I strategize who's going to do that work. What organizations do I need to connect with? What funding bodies will help us do that? What publication targets do we have? So there is a, there's a lot of detailed planning in advance of any project that I work on. And all of it will change <laughs> over the course of the project. And that's okay, but a lot of planning in advance. And just to come back to that pin that I had there earlier, um, one of the other things I encourage visual storytellers to do is to think about producing ecosystems of media around the stories that they create. What I mean by that is we, we live in this just fascinating time that all of a sudden we have these devices in our hands. Our iPhone is one of these things that can produce 12 different kinds of stories at once. Right. And it used to be 20 years ago, it would cost you one hundred thousand dollars to have, you know, this sort of studio that could create all these different kinds of stories, documentary films, photographs, podcasts, written stories. And now we have these things at our hands at a relatively affordable price to produce high quality work. That's an amazing opportunity. It's an amazing opportunity. It's also a challenge. It means sort of everyone can be a visual storyteller these days and we get inundated with a lot of content. That's a problem. Um, or it's a challenge anyway, um, but there's a, there's a huge opportunity here too. So I really encourage folks to think about telling a bunch of different kinds of stories using different kinds of media and don't do the same story for every kind of media that you do, 
right, do a slightly different story that's targeted to reach a different audience. Because again, it's critical we get outside of the choir and outside of the box in this and reach more diverse audiences because that's a way to drive impact, right? So for all the stories I do, I usually do a, a few different pieces of media, sometimes a lot of different ones, but rarely am I just producing one kind of story with one kind of media for any project that I work on. Again, lots to unpack there. <laughs> but but one thing I'm curious about is the drag queen story. What What's your motivation there? Because obviously that's something kind of bit off script as it were in, in terms of what your main focus is so what was the the motivation to explore that particular story and especially something that's so, such a long-term and therefore involved story yeah good question well it, in terms of the motivation i think it's two things first is that the worldview that gives rise to the environmental problems that we face which is to say that there's certain aspects of this world usually non-human aspects that are discounted they're sort of throwaway we don't think about them right they're there to be used and we don't ever think about what happens when they get used and thrown out the back end they're what's called an externality to the system right and that's the way we've thought about the environment for a very long time without realizing of course not only do these things maybe have rights to be in and of themselves but that kind of thinking is going to come back around to bite us eventually right we have that same worldview in perhaps a different way, but certainly parallel way to different populations of people on the planet. Those that have power, and this goes back through all of human history, unfortunately, have found ways to marginalize and to extract and to use up those that don't. So social justice issues and environmental issues share a common DNA. And for that reason, I'm, I'm interested in both. I'm trained as an environmental scientist, but there are no environmental science issues that don't also have a social component to them. Um, and oftentimes vice versa. So there's a general interest here. Beyond that, um, I'm from Appalachia and it's an area that I care about a lot. It's in my bones. It's a, it's a place that's a complicated place and it's a place that I love to tell stories about. Um, and I, I really care about its future. And about 10 years ago, as I said, a bit more now actually, my, my sister and I were at home visiting my folks and we were looking in the newspaper for things to do because at that time, that's what you do. And also Appalachia tends to be um, usually about <laughs> 10 years, five years behind kind of what's happening elsewhere. So we, we, we were looking in the newspaper for things to do and we saw that there was a drag show in the town down the road. And, and my sister and I were just blown away because we, we never, ever growing up, ever saw a space where it felt safe to engage in any other identity that wasn't the most normative identity possible. And we couldn't believe it would be happening here. Not to say that there weren't people that were queer or that were drag in the community, just that it wouldn't be out, you know? And we went to the show and um, were, I was just incredibly moved that there was <laughs> there were these drag queens in a place that I never thought that I would see them. And they were giving it their all to an audience that was not the audience that I expected. My sense of Appalachia growing up there was, okay, there might be a very tiny percent that are going to be up for this, but most people were going to be radically opposed to this. There's no way. And actually, the audience was a lot more diverse than I thought. So it challenged some things, that, sort of the, the stereotypes that I had about conservatism and cultural norms in, in, in Appalachia. And, and also just really inspired me, the, the courage of these individuals um, to, to, to do this work and to be out about this work, um, despite the impacts that they, that they might face. And anywhere where there's where there's great courage, um, there's great interest for me in telling that story. I'm, I'm really inspired by, by courage despite the social costs and potential personal costs of their actions. In terms of that going into a community 
of which you're an outsider to, to whatever degree and whatever dimension, uh, because obviously geographically you're resident in Appalachia. And so that's a story that that's uh, on your doorstep. But how, how do you go about addressing the, the power imbalance that is inherent in any sort of engagement that we as documentary storytellers participate in? You know, how, how do you address that in the projects, whether it's environmental, any, ultimately it's any human story regardless of of the actual broader subject matter how do you approach that yeah i think it's two things one is that we can work to help empower local storytellers tell their own stories this is something we can do in 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 a number of different ways whether that's you know on uh we can support organizations that do that work there's lots of organizations out there that are helping to provide these tools and to provide training so that local storytellers can tell their own stories. Um, we can also, I, I run workshops and when I teach online, usually we make a few spaces available for, for folks um, from marginalized and impact community, impacted communities can come in and get a scholarship to be able to join the classes that I teach. So, you know, I, th- I think there's ways to get after that on a large level, but that, but it doesn't mean that every story needs to be told by somebody that is from that community. I, d- I don't think that's the case. I think that there are lots of opportunities where someone from outside of a community, not only can they leverage um, access to resources that people in that community are, it's just, the reality is it's very difficult to get a hold of. So not only can you do tremendous amount of work, you know, the positive work as an outsider coming into a community, but you also have a perspective that is not invaluable. You may be able to bring a certain degree of expertise that's not internal to that community, while also in your story that you tell, acknowledging that there's certain expertise in that community that you can never have. There's things that you cannot speak to. The sort of lived experience, the local indigenous knowledge that they have of this issue and this geography that you can't have. So the the trick is, if you're going to tell a story that is fundamentally on your on some level, not yours to tell, right? You're not from that geography. You don't have this experience. You don't speak this language, whatever it is. It's really all about relationship building and building trust and fundamentally getting buy-in. You know, asking is, can, can I tell this story? Are, are you comfortable with me telling this story? What, 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 what will that take? What makes you feel comfortable? What can I do? But what, what that means is investing in the time that it takes to be able to do that. And as I said before, the timelines that a lot of news organizations or publications work around is not conducive to doing that. Although some more than others are, you know, open up space for that. So if you want to do that kind of work, you have to find, you have to get savvy about finding some outside funding. But when you do that work, not only do I think, you know, you're producing relationships that are fruitful, hopefully you're producing an an experience that's meaningful for that community and brings back some benefits for that community. But I also think you run the chance of making much, much better work, right? Because powerful documentary work is built on vulnerability and vulnerability and truth only comes through when there's a relationship that's available to be able to be there to receive that and absorb that, right? And when you don't have that access, when you don't have that permission, when you don't have that connection, it shows up in the work, you know? So even if it's just on that level, it's important to make those investments because it's one of the best investments you can make in making great visual stories. So a couple of things. First of all, how, because, you know, what, you, what you're saying is, is amazing. And, and I think everybody everybody should be approaching it in the way that you're describing but obviously the current state of things is not 
does not reflect this ultimately, you know, what could be perceived as a best practice in terms of the approach and the understanding of the need to build relationships and go beyond just good intention, but also consider the impact that you're going to have in terms of your representation of these people and exploring this particular subject, understanding your biases, understanding what you're bringing to the table and what you're lacking all these different things that, that you, you're discussing here. But obviously, in a, a swathe of, of uh, the industry, that thinking just doesn't exist because it is kind of built upon a colonialist mindset or lacking those same ethics, lacking that same rigor in terms of considering all these different dimensions and our role in it all and, and, and being impact-driven. So how do we influence the the wider community how do we go about how can we possibly try and turn this particular ocean liner and and get that to turn around because ultimately we are as you've mentioned if if we're in dialogue with policymakers, with the academics with all these different people we're an important integral part of that because we are the storytellers we're the the bridge between the science or the policy and the general public. We, we, we can help bridge those, those different um, sections of society through visual storytelling, through creating engaging, impactful imagery. So, you know, we're, we're a necessary part of that and we play a significant role in terms of either maintaining a prevailing narrative or challenging it and, and creating and showing that there's another way and, and, and creating a pathway to a different future, to a better, more egalitarian society. So how, <laughs> how do we uh, go about changing visual communication as a whole and, and those people who aren't necessarily thinking or, or even aware of the the consequences of their their approach to photography and, and documentary storytelling as a whole well i i think you start by being the change that you want to see right if we want if we expect the industry to change right if we expect society to change at, at large we need to start with changing the way that that we make our work you know and, you know, I've, I've already talked about that a fair amount, so I, I won't repeat what I've said. But for, 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 for students of mine that I teach that want to get into this work, you know, and they want to get to, to work on some of the projects that I've had the privilege to be able to work on. One of the things I, I say to them is, look, just start where you are. And I mean that by where you are geographically. So before thinking about going into some other community and telling another story, think about a story that needs to be told in the community that you're in. That community could be a story that's, that's yours, actually something you're experiencing, something that somebody immediate to your community, your family is going through, or maybe somebody in, in your neighborhood or in, or in your region. But that's something that you have immediate, hopefully ethical access to, right? And you've got time. You can spend time in the space that you're working in to be able to make those, those connections. So start there and invest there rather than thinking of sort of going off and, and telling a story somewhere else. And uh, but by, the, by virtue of the fact that you're telling a story that's yours to tell and a geography that you know by people that you're intimate with, you're already putting yourself on the right foot to making ethical media that's going to make a difference. If you do want to go off and tell a story somewhere elsewhere, then start from where you are in a different sense. And that's from what you know about. And so what I oftentimes encourage visual storytellers to do when, if they're in school or even if they're out of school is to develop another area of expertise, right? To maybe get a degree in this or maybe to study this or be a good read in this, whatever it is you want to do, but find an area that you, you truly know something about, 
right? Even if it's an academic something of it, you may not know the lived experience of it. And and so for me, I tell stories about environmental issues because I have some degree of expertise in them. I've got two degrees in that space and I, and I worked in that space for a number of years. So when I tell stories in that space, I oftentimes go right to researchers or folks that lead nonprofits or activist organizations. And I ask them, what are the stories that need to be elevated? Do you know people in the communities that are leading this work? Do you know really inspiring folks that I could talk with? And I leverage those connections and I leverage that knowledge and that trust to be able to get the communities to tell those stories. I don't just truly buy a flight to somewhere and walk into a community and say, hey, I'm here to tell this story that I know nothing about and I don't know anybody here. I start from where I am. Right. And so and so that's the thing. Right. Start from where you are. And if you don't feel that you're in a good space, like you don't you don't know people in your community, you don't have an area of expertise, maybe spend some time investing in that before you before you move forward. So that's my first piece of advice is make sure that your work is resonant with these values. And the second one is, is that, you know, when you come to pitch your stories, it's true. We don't we don't have a ton of power as the storytellers, most of the power and they know it and we should know it is held by the editors at the outlets and the funders that fund this work, right? But when you when you go to pitch, what I would suggest is make sure that you're part of the conversation of what this piece is going to be look going to look like and how it's going to be used and make sure it aligns with your values, right? Ask those questions and if you don't feel like it does, pull back from it. You know, it, it pitch it somewhere else and don't be afraid to do that. It might seem like in the short term, you're missing an opportunity and you're missing a little bit of money. But in the, in the long term, I fundamentally believe you're going to be putting yourself in a better position. That isn't to say that sometimes you don't have to make some compromises on your values. I compromise all the time. It's it's what it means to do work. You've got to you've got to learn how to compromise and when to compromise and who to compromise with. Right. But don't be so thoroughly compromised that you feel it undermines the reason why you're doing the work that you're doing. So. One of my other pieces of advice is to is to is to build your tribe, know who your tribe is, know who shares the values that you have um, and to stay stay very close to those people um, across sectors, not just as other visual storytellers, but as editors, funders, impact leaders, business leaders, thought leaders, community leaders. Um, I spend quite a bit of time networking, find other people that care about what you care about, that you feel are decent people. Um, that are virtuous people that are going to uphold these values and invest in them, support them, and work with them because that's how we're going to build. It's it's probably singularly the greatest capital we have moving forward to make change in this in this space is the quality of those relationships. So I suggest to invest in those relationships as much as you possibly can. You you hint upon the fact that you've had to compromise. So yeah, another question that I wanted to ask was about have you ever felt the need to turn down a story, turn down a commission because you didn't feel that you were the right person to, to tell that story. And then as a, as a kind of part of that, in, in what way have you had to compromise and, and be okay with compromising? In terms of stories I've, I've had to turn down, yeah, qu- quite a few. Um, actually, or m- maybe I say for, for any of number of reasons, whether it's I lack the technical expertise or I don't have the time or it's not my story to tell. Um, I mean, there's there's too many to list. I mean, for every story that I have made, there's 70 that I didn't. Right. I mean, it, that's a common thing, I think, for folks that are independent like me. We have a lot of irons in the fire and some of them don't ever materialize for, for X, Y and Z reasons. And some of them are ones you take out of the fire and you put in someone else's fire because it's not not best fit for you. Um, and so I, I do that not infrequently. Um, and I pass them off and I say, hey, this would be great for you. I'm happy to be a part of it in some other other way. Um, but for any number of reasons, I think this is one that you can tell. 
And again, when, when you do that, not only do I think you're making the right choice, um, but in my experience is that that investment comes back to serve you. I, I, most of the opportunities that I have that come to me, come to me from the goodwill of people that I know in, in, in this community. And I, I think part of that is because they're good people. And, but part of that is because I've built a lot of goodwill into the, into the work that I do. And so when, when folks ask me about networking, the thing that I always say is the number one thing to do isn't to go into that asking for something, it's to go into that giving something. Ask yourself, what is it you have to give to other people and be willing to give that even without return. Now, you can't do that forever. That's not sustainable, right? You've got to still be able to think about what you need. Um, you've got to be able to think about your income. I also I also push folks to get really business savvy if you want to um, survive in this space. And I've had to be very business savvy. More on that here in a second. But yeah, if you want to survive, you've also you also can't do it on being altruistic alone, right? Just a word on that. The thing that I that I typically say is think about two different kinds of shape of work that you can approach. One shape of work is work that returns quite a bit of money for you, hopefully, and there are things out there in any given sector that can do this, but hopefully without compromising your values too much. It may not be adding to you in terms of work that's personally moves your why, but hopefully it doesn't take up too much time, but something that is a relatively high return for, for time that you do. And I searched for that for years, and for me, and I, I'm very open about this as a photojournalist, I've shot weddings for years. I, I've, I've retired from weddings several times and I've gone back to them. I'm, I'm re-retiring again. So I've had, a, I've had a long relationship. But part of what has make this, made this work is doing that work. And a lot of photojournalists won't tell you that because there's a stigma around that kind of work. But the truth is, the truth is, a lot of us pursue other things that help make money, whether that's corporate work or that's wedding work or, or, or whatever it might be, um, a side job, consulting. And I'm very open about that because I think if you wanna be able to do this work and do this well, you gotta be able to do it financially sustainably or you're gonna burn out and you'll never get to your best work. So think about the shape of work that allows you to stick around for a while, <laughs> allows you to eat because you gotta eat. So that's one. And the second is work that even if it doesn't return much to you financially, um, even if it takes a lot of time, it fills your soul. Because if you don't do that work, you're going to burn out too. And you're going to be, it's surprising how fast a career goes. Um, mine's already going. I'm in the middle of it, I suppose. But it, it felt fast to get here. Um, and it's probably going to feel fast on the backside. And when you look back over the course of the work that you made, the number one thing that you think about is, is this an extension of what it is I wanted to make with the time I had on this planet? And to the extent that it is, you feel good about it. To the extent that it isn't, you feel lost. And so you want to make sure that all along the way, you're coming back to that why and you're pursuing work that gets after that why. Um, so I encourage folks to be strategic and do both of those things at the same time. Are there any mistakes that you, you've made along the way that have been valuable and other things that you, maybe you wish you'd learned sooner? Well, I'll, I'll just say first that, you know, I, I, I describe myself as a very effective, very talented failure. Uh, I, fa I, I fail all the time. I mean, for every success that I have, there must be 50 failures that I have. That could be whether it's pitching a story for every one story that I've had accepted. 50 or 60 didn't go through whether it's a grant that i've written there's 50 or 60 that didn't go through you know a story that i created there's so many that didn't happen whatever or there's a piece of work that i made that's not excellent the trick is to fail well and what it means is to fail well is to understand what it is that you're responsible for what it is you could have done better and to own that entirely 
you know, not ever shy away from the fact that we're imperfect beings and we do things wrong. So really to own that and to learn from that and also to let go of these sort of external values that are placed upon you and to be just be comfortable with the work and move on even when stuff doesn't go well. Right. To just be able to accept it, be able to accept that a lot of what happens isn't our responsibility to fix. There's nothing we can do about it and just let it go and move on. But to be resilient is what the word is. Right. To be able to keep going in spite of it, keep after your why in spite of in spite of the failures. So that's my first piece of advice. Sorry, and what was the question again? I, I... What you wish you'd learned sooner. Things things that uh, you feel you could have really benefited from had you learned it sooner in your, your journey. Yeah, so again, first piece of advice there is don't worry about failure. Um, anyone that has succeeded in the long run um, has done so because they failed often. They may not project that failure, um, but but all of us who get anywhere, with, with maybe exception of a few that are just graced by the light of God at every turn. That's not my story for sure. Um, have gone through with bumps and scrapes along the road and they came out at the other side better for it. So try to be that person because that's the one you're likely to be. In terms of things that I wish I would have known at the beginning that, that I only know now, the, the first one, and we've hit on this often, so there's only so much more I can say about it, but being a visual storyteller isn't really about the lens, right? I spent a lot of time, a lot of time in the early part of my career researching everything I could possibly understand about the machines that I was working with. And that was an important thing for me to be doing at that time because I needed to understand the machine to be able to use it as an extension of myself, right? So we, we do have to be very intimate with our machines. We have to make beautiful images, right? But really great work, really great documentary work, really great lens-based work of any kind is about connections, right? It's about connecting with yourself, knowing why you do what you do. It's about being able to connect with the communities and the characters that you work with. It's about being able to connect with audiences. It's about being able to connect with the issues that you work about work with in a way that drives impact. So it's the it's it's those relationships and investing in those relationships, spending time developing those relationships that I could have done more of when I started out, and I and I wish I would have, um, that I think would have made a biggest difference. And to answer your question about sort of mistakes along the way, I think for for me, whenever I've hired people, or I've decided to work with people, whether hired crew or decided to bring on a collaborator or a partner. Early on, there were a few times when I did that, and the decision that that, that I made was around their expertise, you know, their sort of prestige and the the value that I thought that they brought to bear because of what they knew and because of the badges that they wore. And I have regretted that almost every time that I've done that. And in the long run of choosing people to work with, I would choose character every single time and with a little bit less polish because <laughs> we could always work on the polish as opposed to working with, with somebody that um, undermines your values, you know, that's going to bring down the quality of your work because that is a headache that doesn't that doesn't go away. You can always fix something that's imperfect. If it doesn't look quite right, you can go back and work on it and fix it up. Um, but if there's something that, that, that really cuts you down and um, keeps you from sleeping at night, that's something that's very hard to, 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 to fix. So I say, you know, again, really know your tribe and know who you're working with and, and, and choose carefully. Is there ever a case where you've brought your training back online as a scientist and, and done something kind of that has this multidimensional and multidisciplinary in that sense that you're feeding into something academic, but also exploring something visually? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, certainly the things that I, that I make, ho hopefully within the story, there's some sort of teaching element involved. I mean, I, I like to think that I'm, even when I'm being a photographer, I'm teaching in some way or another so that I'm contributing academically in, in that sense. But no, a significant amount of my work um, is going and lecturing at schools and sharing the work, but then really being involved in the conversation on the back end about it, about 
how scientists can become better storytellers. In fact, I'm giving uh, several lectures uh, this coming week and next week, because it's Earth Week, um, for scientists and academics that they can uh, either learn to become better partners with storytellers or become better storytellers um, them themselves. Um, so yeah, I, I do quite a bit. And as I mentioned before, I'm a part of several sort of think tanks that are also thinking through the, these questions and, and producing um, um, theory-based work around these questions. So I, I am very much involved. I, I will say I, I very, very rarely wear a hard scientist hat anymore, uh, either 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 figuratively or, or in a hard hat sense. Um, yeah, I, I um, you know, I think I figured out long ago that's what it takes to be a great scientist and a great field researcher probably doesn't overlap very tightly with the skills that that I have. I have a lot of respect for for scientists and what they do. Uh, my wife is a very very talented scientist, um, but but I do very little science work these days. I would say most of my work is more in science communication. I'm done, um, you know, oftentimes very very closely in partnership with scientists, uh, but not as a scientist myself. You don't have any regrets then of, of taking that turn in, in, in your path and, and leaving academia behind? And are you happy with, I, I suppose also in the sense, not just with who you are and, and understanding that this was the right thing for you and, and academia wasn't, or at least um, the form that you were exploring, but also in terms of your impact. Do you feel that based on everything that you've done and that your approach, because obviously, you know, you've got it really nailed down and, and you, you've got it really refined in terms of your understanding of how you want to go about having impact and how you um, make sure that everything that you do does have um, meaningful and positive impact. Is there any, any time when there's this little voice in your head that says, hmm, Maybe maybe I should have maybe I should have stuck it you know as a, an environmental scientist every single day right okay okay <laughs> yeah no, of course I uh, I loved that life and if if I could but have more than one of these lives or I could run parallel lives at at once um, th there's a life for me where I'd have been very happy uh, doing that work I I also was um, an outdoor educator I was really into skiing and climbing and hiking and all this stuff and there's a life for me where I'd have loved doing that forever too. Um, I, I think in, in general, I'm, I'm a pluralist. Like I, I have a lot of loves. Um, I, I love history. I could have studied history whenever I was in school. I, I, you know, I, I recently applied to do a de degree in architecture. I mean, I, I'm probably tragically drawn to all that life has to offer, but, but at some point in time, you know, I realized that if I want to ever gain a degree of expertise, you know, that is perhaps reaches some degree of excellence. I can't say I'm there yet, but if I want to point towards that, I need to become a little bit more committed and invested in a particular path. Now, again, hopefully that path is committed to the thing that I care most about. Um, and so I chose this path and I'm, I'm very, very happy for it. I think it's a path for me that uses me in a way that my particular skill set, what I can do and what I care about and what I know about is pointed towards what I think the world needs to see. And that experience of being used, of being used in what you think is good work. And we don't get to see the ends of all things. But th that experience of being used in a meaningful way, I think is one of the most fulfilling experiences that you can have. It's not always pleasurable. Uh, it's, yes, there's, there's many days when I wish I was out uh, on skiing down a mountain somewhere instead of stuck in front of the computer, pushing pixels around. But, um, but I think the sense of fulfillment and joy that you get from hoping in some ways that you've you've contributed that you've made a use of your time such that it made somebody else's time better 
Um, there's few things that are more rewarding than that. So I'd like to think I'm doing that. I don't know, but that's what I'm pointed at. And are there any particular skills then that you're currently trying to develop or new skills or existing skills that you're refining, that you're really focusing on to become an expert in that? Yeah, well, I mean, outside of the range of visual storytelling, and I'll I'll say the sort of visual storytelling tools that I'm uh, developing, but yeah, I mean, outside that range, um, you know, I'm also considering potentially going back um, into academia. I will say that's not something that I've, I've ruled out entirely. I sort of perennially threaten to apply for a PhD. I do on occasion <laughs> and then kind of back out. So who, who knows? Again, who who, who knows? I, I may. There's a lot of different kinds of questions that I'm interested in asking. So that's, that's a possibility. It's not something I'm doing immediately, but it's something I've been thinking about. Another skill that I've been developing sort of, I guess, outside of, directly outside of um, visual storytelling is working as a teacher. Um, Again, for me, that's the exact same thing as being a scientist or as being a visual storyteller. It's all in service of the same thing. I don't see them as that different, but they are considered to be different disciplines. Um, And so I've been doing quite a bit of teaching, considering a return to academia as a teacher, um, potentially as a researcher as well. They often, uh, often the job description requires both, but really there because I love teaching. And I think it's one of the best investments we can make for the future is to be able to hand these skills off. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm here today, right? Is because I, I, I don't think if you have any sense of what you're doing, keeping it bottled up inside of you serves anybody, right? I, I, I don't look at sharing the things that I that I do. It's sort of hold, you know, holding them back. It's going to protect me in some way, like keeping a hold of some proprietary knowledge. I, I think the 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 best thing we can do is to share and invest in the community around us. So I I never worry about that. I always get excited about um, sharing the sort of secrets of the craft. So so I enjoy teaching, um, and that's another skill area. But you know, in the in this like in the hard <laughs> space of lenses and all that sort of stuff, which I do love, which I do love. Um, yeah, I'm kind of rediscovering analog. Uh, work. Um, I'm not terribly old, but I'm old enough that I grew up, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s shooting 35 millimeter and 120 millimeter film. Um, and I've recently rediscovered a love for that. It turns out it's an absolutely lovely medium. Um, it's got its limits. That's why we moved away from it. Um, it's not useful for everything, but it's beautiful at what it does well. And so I've been rediscovering that and re-exploring that. Um, the last five years, I've been doing a lot more of lighting in the field. So using strobes, sort of incorporated into my documentary field work, using them for portraiture, also using them for some creative lighting um, in the field. Uh, and then of course, becoming a better filmmaker. I think compared to photography, uh, you know, filmmaking is just exponentially harder. It's like chess to checkers, right? They're, they're similar in some ways, but filmmaking takes everything you deal with as a photographer and makes it a hundred times more complex and adds on so many different dimensions. As any filmmaker that's listening to this knows, it's, uh, it's just a, it's an exercise in suffering, um, hopefully in the best possible way, but often not. And so, yeah, I'm trying to become a better filmmaker too. And I think, you know, the ceiling for that is incredibly high and I'm in, I'm in the basement. So I get a long, get a long way to climb. Just to wrap up then, are there any active documentary storytellers that you're currently taking inspiration from, be it photographer, filmmaker, and especially if, if you want to start yeah, moving forward in terms of your, your filmmaking skills, um, any particular people that you're focused on at the minute? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say first that I am a, I'm a tragically bad study of uh, work that's been done prior to mine. And I, I think part of that is, because the field that I came from, you know, one of the downsides, I suppose, of skipping 
journalism school, skipping doing an MFA, is I never got to invest the time that you would studying folks in the field, both um, past and, and present, that are pursuing work. I, I would have loved to have done that. I think I would have got an enormous kick out of going out of uh, going to photography school or filmmaking school. I just never had the time or the privilege to do that. Um, but what, what that means is, whereas a number of people in my field are very, very good at rattling off all these different, you know, theorists and practitioners, um, I, I'm not as good of a study. I've made much more of an effort in the last five years to look at other work and get inspired by, by other work. Um, so so I, I will say probably the person that I've been following the most the last couple of years and also talking to uh, as well is Ed Cashy, who's a documentary photographer. I got to know Ed um, when him and I were both faculty, teaching faculty at Social Documentary Network, which um, is an online organization where you can take online semester-long courses, which are great, by the way. Anyone out there that's listening wants um, re- really great documentary photography tuition at an affordable price. It's it's a great spot. But anyway, I got to know Ed through that. I, I'd seen Ed's work prior to that. He's legendary. I would imagine most folks know of him. If you don't know of him, you, you certainly should. But his work is um, excellent, and he's just a wonderful guy to boot. So I've been getting to know his work a lot better and trying to um, look at it as a way to explore it and understand about how I can become a better storyteller and also how I can become a better mentor in this space too. I think Ed's a, he's a true leader in this space. Um, and so I sort of look at not only his work, but who he is as a person. Uh, Cause as I said before, I think who we are can be just as important as what we make and what we do. So I'm trying to invest in that in myself as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for your time and chatting to me today. I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I, I really appreciate that you're putting this together and you're asking all the right questions and the work that you're doing yourself. So um, I think this is, a, this is a really great project and I'm very, very proud to be part of it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Documentary Storytellers podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Mike. You can find links to his work in the show notes, along with all the people, organizations, and work referenced in the interview. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you might be listening and to the newsletter at documentarystorytellers.com forward slash newsletter. And please help more people to learn about Mike's work and the work of everyone I've interviewed by sharing this and other episodes with everyone and anyone you think might be interested. If you have any feedback or would like to help with the production of the podcast, then please email me at chris at documentarystorytellers.com. Thanks again, and until next time, take care.